Teresa, thank you for accompanying us this morning. It's a pleasure to have you. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13 will be our text this morning. The book of Hebrews was written to encourage Christians, those that had professed Christ and were considering a return to Judaism. They were facing persecution. They were facing troubling times. And so to sum up the book of Hebrews, you could see that it presents a perfect Christ. It presents a perfect salvation that is found in Christ. And as it argues, beginning in the first chapter through the second chapter, Christ is greater than the angels. It moves into the argument that Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is the greater high priest. It tells us how Christ is greater than all. And you see this through several words that are repeatedly used in the book of Hebrews. It's a book about how things are better in Christ. You find the word excellent twice, superior twice, that our salvation is great. You find the word perfect nine times. You find the word better ten times. And the whole point is, is this letter is about something that is more excellent, something that is more superior, something that is greater, something that is better, something that is perfect. And that is, it is perfect in Christ. And so before we get into our text this morning, we want to divide it up in these two ways, is that Jesus is the perfect Savior. Jesus is our perfect Savior And Jesus is also our perfect brother. Jesus is our perfect Savior. He is our perfect brother. We see that Jesus is the perfect Savior because God gives a perfect plan of redemption. And that perfect plan is realized through a perfect founder, a perfect author. And that he was perfectly set aside for this task. And that he offers and completes a perfect sanctification in the life of the believer. Because Jesus is the perfect Savior. We also see that He is the perfect brother because He has perfect solidarity with His people. He offers a perfect forgiveness. He stands with us in a perfect victory. And all because of a perfect election that we are given in the Father, or given in the Son. So let's hear the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. I want to walk through this text uh, rather quickly here, reading through it. And I'm going to ask that you follow along as I read it again. Because as you read this text, it's hard to sometimes determine who it is that is being spoken of. Is it God the Father or is it the Son? So you'll notice verse 10, for it was fitting that he, this is God the Father, 
For whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, that is Jesus, of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he, that is Jesus, who sanctifies. And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. He goes on to quote Psalm 22, verse 22, and it's Jesus speaking. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, Jesus is speaking when it's quoting Isaiah in chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. I hope that helps as you go back and read this text. It's so important and helpful for our understanding of the text And what we begin to see here is that Jesus is our perfect Savior. He offers a perfect salvation because it flows from a perfect plan. It was from a plan that was hatched in eternity. It's an eternal plan. Notice what it says, for it was fitting. And you notice that word for, it it returns us back to verse 9, where we see that the Son of God would taste death for all of mankind. And so verse 10 is bouncing off the subject of death, for it was fitting. It's explaining here, verse 10, the suffering and death that Christ faced. The word fitting is an important word, and we have to ask, why does it say it is fitting? And the reality is this, is the the world views the cross as foolishness. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross does not make any sense to the world. See, it is foolishness. And so the idea that death would bring salvation, that death would bring life, it is seen as as a foolish thing to the world. But yet we see here that it's fitting. We see that not only that it was fitting, but this is the way it had to be. In fact, if you look at verse 17 of Hebrews, it tells us this, that it had to happen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect for this purpose, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It was necessary that the creator and the sustainer of the world rescue his people through these means of sending his son. It was a fitting plan. When you think about it, that it was fitting, the plan is fitting because it is consistent with the character of God, that he should punish sin, that he is a just God, that he is a righteous God. It is consistent with his holiness. It is consistent with his hatred of sin. It is consistent with his love. In love, he sent his son to pay the price. It's fitting that through death we receive life. You'll notice as you read the text, it was fitting that, and then there's a comma after the he, and you go to the next comma, 
It continues the thought in bringing many sons to glory. It's fitting in bringing many sons to glory. But there's this little in-between there, sandwiched between those thoughts that says, For whom and by whom all things exist. This is a reminder of who God is, that He creates all things, He sustains all things, and all things are for Him and working through Him and for Him. You think of Romans chapter 11, verse 36, For from Him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And that works with this idea that this plan was fitting. This plan is fitting because he is working all things for his glory. And in this working all things for his glory, the benefit for us is he is bringing many sons to glory. He brings those whom he has adopted in the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings them to glory. This is an inherited salvation to come. As you saw last week, that we saw that the, in verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, but he subjected the world to come to man, and specifically to the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we will inherit a new heavens. We will inherit inherit a new earth. He doesn't promise us the land of Canaan. He promises us a new creation. And He is bringing many sons to that new creation. It was fitting then that in salvation He brings this about through death. It was through suffering that this plan comes. Now notice this phrase in bringing many sons. I think we could make a lot of doctrinal points here, but the emphasis this is adoption. Adoption is what the emphasis is here, is that through Christ and in Christ, we are adopted and called sons of God. But notice the double act in this phrase, and there certainly is a double act here. The first one is that of adoption, that we are made sons. That if you are in Christ, you are a son, you are a daughter of God. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So that's the first act that we see here, is that in adoption, we're called sons, we're called daughters. But it doesn't end there. There's a second reality that we must face and be encouraged by, is that not only does he call you son, not only does he call you daughter, but he himself, in his plan, ensures that he brings you to glory. It is his plan, and he sees it through. God himself is the one bringing his adopted ones to glory. It was God's plan to do this. It was fitting because it flows from the very nature of God. And because it is God's plan, it is a plan that will happen. His eternal plan of redemption to save a people and bring them to glory is one that is ensured to happen by God himself. And it's accomplished through our perfect founder. The perfect plan is realized through the perfect founder, the perfect author, 
and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice what it says. It should it says should make the founder of their salvation, that is the sons that are being brought to glory, the founder of their salvation, perfect. What does it mean to be the founder? Well, in the previous week when we looked at Psalm 8, where it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? We remembered that that was a meditation upon Genesis, and that Adam was given the garden as the representative, as the federal head of all mankind, but Adam failed. And so we see here that Christ, as our representative, is our founder. He is our federal head. He is the one that is the forerunner. He is the one that secures salvation where Adam fell to be a founder, as an originator. Some of your translations may say author. He's the trailblazer. He's the one who sets the lead. You find this title given to Christ in a few different places in Scripture, and it helps us to just maybe see these. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You also see this is attributed uh, to Christ in, in the book of Acts. You see it in Acts chapter 3. In verse 15, it says, And you killed the author of life. It's that same word. Again, in Acts in chapter 5 and verse 31, we see the same word applied to Christ. God exalted him as his right hand as leader. And so you see it translated that he is the, the author, he is the leader. In, in Hebrews, the, the translators of the ESV translated it as founder. But it is all to say that he is the source, that salvation is secured through Jesus. And he's going to make these arguments throughout the rest of Hebrews that Jesus is greater And as He is the founder, He is the more secure, He is the greater, He is the better, He is the perfect founder. Whereas Moses led the children out of Egypt and out of bondage of Egypt, Jesus leads His children out of bondage of sin. Whereas uh, Joshua led the people into Canaan to conquer a new land, our founder our trailblazer, our author, the Lord Jesus Christ actually gives us a new creation. He's the perfect founder. It's in Him that we have security, that we have a new creation, that in Him and Him alone, salvation is found. Salvation is in Christ, in Christ alone. There's no other plan. And this is the fitting plan. And it's the only one And it's accomplished by the perfect one. You'll notice who was given a perfect ordination. Notice it says that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now this is a difficult phrase to try to figure out. All that we've heard and read about Jesus and all that you know about Jesus, how could he, the perfect son of God, God himself, be made perfect? In his incarnation, he was perfect as the sinless Son of God. As the second person of the Trinity, he is perfect as God. 
How could it be said that Jesus is made perfect? Wasn't he perfect from eternity? And wasn't he perfect as he took on flesh? And the answer is yes. So what does it mean to say that he was made perfect? It's used in speaking of a consecration for office. That he was set aside for an office. He was consecrated for this office. And that through his perfect obedience to the will of the Father, he was consecrated. We see that he was made perfect in his act of obedience to the law. That he fulfilled all the commands of the righteous law. But that he was also obedient passively to the suffering that he experienced upon the cross. That Christ was obedient in all ways. And so when we see this, that he was made perfect, it wasn't that he wasn't perfect. It's speaking of his office that he takes. And perfection here is the idea of a completion of something. That something is fulfilled, something is is, uh, completed, the goal that was intended. And it's realized in Christ. You see this in chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In chapter 7, in verse 28, it says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect. You see that phrase again. He has been made perfect. It's speaking of something that's accomplished in Christ. It speaks of His completed work. And the good news is that that results in a perfect and completed and a fulfilled salvation. In chapter 10, verse 14, we see, for by a single offering, He has perfected. Perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That he was perfectly fulfilling his role, and it was through suffering. He died upon the cross. He took sins upon himself. Yet he was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. But hang on that idea of suffering for a second. Doesn't it show us the vileness of sin? Doesn't it show us how horrendous sin itself is? Do we not see God's justice displayed? Do we not see God's holy nature in that phrase, suffering? We see all of those things for for certain, but we also see such great love that he would accomplish this act on behalf of those that are vile. That he would accomplish this act by sending his son who knew no sin, who was made perfect to experience that for us. And because of that, we receive a perfect sanctification. Remember, this is about a perfect Savior. That we are given a perfect plan for salvation that's realized in a perfect founder. 
who received a perfect ordination. And in the accomplishment of this through suffering, through death, we, those in Christ, receive a perfect sanctification. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This verse is speaking of the work of Christ. Specifically, it states that Christ is the one that sanctifies, which is to be set apart, which is to be made holy. We oftentimes, and it's correct to say that sanctification is that process of growing in Christ's likeness. We, we use that phrase often that is part of our Christian language to say sanctification. We're in the process of sanctification. We see it as a process, and it certainly is a process, but that's not what's being spoken of here. We are also sanctified in Christ when we come to trust in Christ. And that means this, is that when we trust in Christ, we are set apart and we are made holy. Now, for the Jews, this would have been a shocking or even jarring statement. For if you read specifically in Leviticus, many times you will find the phrase, for Yahweh sanctifies you. But we're told right here that it is the perfect founder of our faith that sanctifies, that has sanctified his people. And it's specifically here applied to the second person of our triune God, the Lord Jesus. We always must remember that the work of God is the work of our triune God. But here we are told that this is accomplished specifically in the person of Christ. And I want you to notice about this, this sanctification, this setting apart, this being made holy. It's something that's complete. It's something that's accomplished. It refers to a completed action. Those in Christ have been cleansed and are able to enter into the presence of God because of Christ. Such an amazing statement. You notice what it says again, For he who sanctifies, that is Christ, and those who are sanctified that we have been sanctified and Christ himself as the one who does this. He's going to move into the argument that Jesus is our perfect brother. But I want to just point out something here in this idea of sanctification. And by way of illustration in making this point, if you think of Aaron and the line of high priests, they went through a process of sanctification on behalf of their family in order that they would be sanctified. And while in a different sense, we see that the Lord Jesus does this for us, where he goes through this for our, on our behalf, that he gives eternal life to those because he himself was set apart for this task, that we would be made holy in Him. Christ Himself is our sanctification. There's a little phrase that that helps us with this is Christ 
for us and our justification and Christ in us for our sanctification. Christ for us in justification, where we are justified, we are declared not guilty. Christ in us for our sanctification, that we are set apart in him. We are truly set apart. We are made holy in him. Which means this is that something actually has changed in us. If you're sanctified and you're set apart and made holy, and Christ himself is that sanctification... It means something's changed. It means you've been made new. The New Testament describes it in many ways, that you're a new creation. You've been given a new mind. You've been given a new heart. You've been given a new disposition. You have a new purpose in life. You have new life of eternal life because you've been set apart. I want you to notice that that is speaking to those that are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have been declared holy. You have been declared set apart. It means that we have been transformed by God's grace. We are made new, and our old identity that once identified us no longer identifies us because we are now counted righteous. We are now counted as saints. We are called disciples. We are called those that pick up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ because something has changed in us, because Christ dwells in us, and Christ is our sanctification, making us wholly new. The old man is dead. You have been made new in Christ. Sometimes we we shrink back in the idea of being called a saint. Or to be said that I'm holy. Well, because we're so too familiar with our own sinfulness. We live with our thoughts. We live with our actions. But the scripture tells us that that's what we are in Christ. And here's why. Because our holiness is not our own holiness. It's His holiness. He's the one who sanctifies. Our righteousness is not our own. It is His righteousness. As Luther said, and I've said many times, it's an alien righteousness. It's outside of us, but it's given to us. It's not our own. It is Christ's own. We stand in Him who sanctifies I love what the Second London Confession of Faith says. It says, God who effectually calls, he also freely justifies. And how? By imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for the whole and soul righteousness. It's not infused like a little bit of my righteousness and a little bit of Christ's righteousness, but it is solely and wholly and only Christ's righteousness that is imputed to the believer. And praise God, because all I offer is sin. And Christ imputes His perfect righteousness. And so if you are in Christ this morning, you have a perfect righteousness. This is good news. Because it's not your righteousness that God judges you by. But it's by the righteousness of His Son. And His righteousness is perfect. This wonderful news of being set apart in Christ, the wonderful news that we are adopted 
by God and called sons and daughters of God, it brings us to this wonderful point in our text, which is this, is Jesus is our perfect brother. We've already been told in chapter 1 that he calls us friend. But now we're called, told that he calls us brother. Notice the phrase here before we get to where he calls us brother. It says that we are sanctified by him. We all have one source. That is Christ's own perfect solidarity with his own. Many people debate over what the exact uh, meaning of that is, but it literally just says that all those that are sanctified are one. It means that we have a like nature. That's an amazing statement. Because if you go back to chapter 1, what were we told about Christ? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. But here we're told, those who are sanctified by the sanctifier all have one source. That Him in taking on flesh became one with humanity. He was truly man while remaining truly God. That's the mystery of the incarnation. God incarnate. The God-man. The second person of the Trinity. Two natures in one person. Unites himself with man. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That he himself partook of the same flesh. That he truly is man. And so we are described as being sanctified. We're also told that the one who sanctifies us, that speaks of distinction, we're told that he is one with us. He who sanctifies becomes one with his own. While he is apart from us, he is solidarity, he has oneness. He has made them holy and now stands with them. So Jesus, our perfect brother, first has perfect solidarity with us. And this is why he says he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Why? Because he's offered a perfect forgiveness. That's why he's not ashamed. And just consider the magnitude of the statement. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Because what have we seen intimated in these verses because of the suffering, because of death? We've realized and had to be faced and come, come to face with the fact that we're sinful. And Christ was not. It's an amazing thing that in His solidarity and taking on flesh, He took on flesh to represent man... And in representing man, he fulfilled the law, whereas Adam failed. He suffered on the cross, taking the penalty of sin, which is death, and thus granting us life by sanctifying us. But we are sanctified because we need sanctification. You think about all of that, and that he becomes one with his people people that are in open rebellion against Him. You know, we, we look at the horrors of the cross and we think, how could they do that to one so perfect? 
we would do the same thing to the Lord Jesus Christ if it wasn't for His grace. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right hand Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for godly people. He didn't die for the righteous because there is none. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, God though, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What an amazing statement that he's not ashamed of those that are sinful. He's not ashamed of those that he has declared righteous by his own righteousness. That is quite an amazing statement because he dies for them, he sanctifies them, and then he even says this, I'm not ashamed of you. He's not embarrassed by his people. He's not afraid to call them brother. He's not afraid to call them sister. I want you to think about the implications of that. Christ is not ashamed. He's the perfect one to call imperfect people brothers. And you think of our attitudes towards people. We who are not perfect we who are sinful, we who are in need of grace, we who are in need of mercy. Jesus was not in need of those things. So let us not be ashamed with those that also have been redeemed by Christ. Because without shame, Christ is with His brothers and sisters that were sinners and will continue to struggle with sin until brought to glory. And if you are in Christ this morning and you struggle with sin, you struggle with mess-ups in life, guess what? Christ is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Why? Because He died for you. It's an incredible lesson for us in humility and what Christian grace looks like, isn't it? You ever think about this? Do you ever think about someone, you just think, how could that person be saved? And you think of the worst person possible. The worst of the worst. You've got that in your mind, I'm sure. You can think of someone. You think, how could they be saved? You know, here's the reality of this. I mean, there's so many problems with that question, right? We kind of assume that we are deserving of grace more so than someone else. But here's the reality. That worst of the worst person you can think of, not only are they saved, but Christ is not ashamed to call them brother. Not only does He set them apart, look at, there's no like, you just squeak on into heaven. It's not like Jesus is kind of cracking the door for you to pop on in there. No, it tells us those who He saves, He is not ashamed to call them brother and not call them and call them sister. We're united in Christ, and there's no shame. And doesn't this also correct our understanding of grace? Is that no one is more deserving of grace than anyone else? 
There's no one that deserves grace more than anyone else. God's grace and salvation is by God's eternal sovereign choice based upon his good pleasure. That's why we see it's not based upon work so that no one may boast. And so if you are in Christ this morning, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you struggle with assurance... If you struggle whether with whether you can be forgiven, you need to know this. In Christ, not only are you forgiven, that He also calls you brother, He also calls you sister. He's not ashamed to do that. And if Christ is not ashamed to call sinful people saved by grace His brother and sister, how could we be ashamed? And the further make this point of his solidarity with his people. Beginning in verse 12, we see Psalm 22, verse 22 quoted. Let me read it to you. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is Jesus speaking. This is the words of Jesus And if you follow Psalm 22 itself, it's a messianic psalm. It speaks of the horrors of the cross that Christ faced. Jesus quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, upon the cross when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as you read through Psalm 22, all the way through the 21st verse, you see a description of Christ's crucifixion that David prophesied. It's a lament. It's a cry. It's a cry of being abandoned. But then when you get to verse 22, Psalm 22 shifts. It goes from lament to that of praise. And the rest of the psalm speaks not only of the resurrection, but it speaks of the victory that Christ has. And so when we read this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is speaking of the victory of the cross. That Christ shares that victory with his people. That he himself will tell the name of the Father to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. The congregation, here if you read... Any of the older commentaries, particularly uh, from Calvin and through the Puritans, they'll note this as that congregation is the church. Ecclesia is the, the word underneath that. He will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the church. I, Jesus, will sing your praises. It's an amazing statement that Christ shares that victory With, and here's the point being made, he shares that victory with his family. F.F. Bruce, the commentator, says this, Those whose the Son of God is pleased to call his brothers are members of his church. What a beautiful thought, isn't it? Christ is the head of the church. Sing praises in the midst of his church. And this all happens by God's own design which you'll notice in verse 13. It's quoting from Isaiah 8, verse 17. I will put my trust in him. You must see that phrase that Christ saying, I will put my trust in him in light of Psalm 22. You see, in the context of Isaiah, 
in chapter 8, God had turned his face from the house of Jacob. And Jacob was to be the representative of his people. Just as in Psalm 22, where it speaks of the suffering servant, and we see the cry from the cross of, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The father turns his face away from the son, yet the son trusts in the father. He trusted that the Father would rescue him. Whereas Isaiah trusted that God would rescue his people, Christ, it says, we are told, he himself, I will put my trust in you. Christ trusts the Father would rescue him in his suffering, despite the horror of the cross, that Christ would be vindicated. But it is not his vindication alone. Look at the next part. And behold, I and the children God has given me. That Christ is vindicated in the resurrection, and so are his people. And I want you to notice that the work of salvation and the solidarity that takes place is from God alone. This is that fitting salvation that it was fitting that it would be this way. Why was it fitting? Well, I said this from the beginning. It was because it was an eternal plan of salvation. And it must be this way. It must be from God's plan and God's choice. You'll notice the phrase, the children God has given me. That is Jesus speaking of the children that the Father has given him. The Father gives a people to His Son as a gift. The Father gives to the Son a people. And they are placed in the Son's safekeeping. God the Father gives a people to God the Son. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That speaks of the Father giving and then the Son keeping. That's the promise. Look at verse 39 of John 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Not only do we see here that the Father gives to the Son, the Son keeps, but then the Son promises that they will be raised. Many sons brought to glory. You see in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is the Father giving them to the Son. And look at the safekeeping and the future resurrection. I will raise him up on the last day that the Lord Jesus has given a people. He keeps them in his hand and then he promises to bring them to glorification. This is speaking of a perfect election. You know, there's a point here that we could make on the idea of election. And I know that for many, that can be a struggle. And the point here isn't to discuss the mystery of election. It's just actually assumed in Scripture that God elects a people. That God's work of salvation is by His choice. But rather than confuse us or cause debate... Actually, God's sovereign choice of a people that he gives to his son 
is the foundation of our assurance. It's the foundation of our peace. It is where we draw comfort from it. Knowing that in Christ, because of God's perfect fitting plan, realized in His perfect Savior, the perfect founder of our faith, we are secured. And that perfect founder who has sanctified us will bring us about and keep us to that day. It's a means of comfort. We don't have to figure out all of the details that we can't even figure out anyways. It's a means of comfort. If you're in Christ, it's because God the Father has given you to the Son, and the Son will keep you and raise you up on that final day. And God the Father is bringing you to glory. It's not based upon you. You can't mess it up, because if you could, you would have. God Himself ensures it. That's the good news of the gospel. If you could mess it up, if you could lose it, that would be not the good news. That would be the bad news because we would have already lost it. And this we're reminded by another proof here that in Christ we are called what, according to the text? Children of God. Christ himself is our perfect brother. If we ever wonder why or how, how could this be? We ask those questions because we know intrinsically, we know inside of us, we don't deserve it. But we can be promised this, that Christ, in Christ, The Father is bringing many sons, those whom have been adopted in Christ. He is bringing them to glory through who he who sanctifies. And he who sanctifies is not ashamed to call you brother, and he's not ashamed to call you sister. That is the wonderful truth today that we can rest in, we can find comfort in, and we can be encouraged by that in Christ you have a perfect salvation. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you trusted in this perfect founder? Do you know him and has he called you brother? Has he called you sister? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel and that it is a balm to our soul to be reminded of these truths that Christ is not ashamed to call those whom the Father has given him brother and sister. What a profound mystery to be know, to know that we can be called sons and daughters of God. But we know that it came at such a high price. It came at the price of the cross. I pray, Father, that we would never forget these things, that we would always look upon them as a daily source of encouragement to move forward, just as this was written to encourage struggling Christians almost 2,000 years ago that were facing uncertain times. We can relate. And so, Father, we pray that these truths would be applied to our hearts and carry us through the days to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.